Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, June 27th, 2023, the 888th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So over the last couple of episodes, we've talked about a concept I call informational time travel and how we can use this concept to understand the ways in which we get pushed into inversions within the false reality to detach us from this actual reality, leave us in a state of uncertainty about virtually everything. Everything becomes confusing. We get 
offset on the details of events in the world and the meaning that we should extract from those details, from those events. We get offset in terms of our position on a timeline relative to certain events. We become unmoored from our history. We become unmoored from our present. And then we are given images of what we think the future is supposed to look like so that we will accept that future when we get there. We talked about how most of the stories that we're given that really catch our attention are fake news. They're fake in some respect or many respects, and sometimes they're fake in all respects. Sometimes they manipulate the understanding of stories based on the surrounding context, the things that everybody knows. They're able to manipulate how they assume we view the rest of what we know, which convinces us to draw the wrong conclusions of what we are now presented with. Sometimes they get the facts wrong about real events. They present those facts to us. And then by the time all the facts become clear, the story is actually the opposite of the way they told it to us. And then sometimes the story is so unprovable and preposterous that there's absolutely no reason to assume any of it happened whatsoever. But over time, over the course of our lives, through this process of constant knowledge handed down from authority that intersects a trauma that we experience either personally or societally, that we are then encouraged to draw the wrong meaning and the wrong conclusions from. We misinterpret the situation, and in doing so, we reaffirm a prior misinterpretation and a prior mistake, leading us to repeat the same misinterpretation over and over and over again throughout our lives, which explains, for instance, why many people still believe that the government is trustworthy and that they are constantly exercising the best possible expertise in order to generate the best possible outcomes for everyone. Doesn't matter about the Kennedy assassination or Vietnam or 9-11 or too big to fail or COVID. And you can just keep going down the list. Each time one of those traumatic societal events happens, a portion of society agrees with the television and with the government that the proper response is to trust the government more and to trust your neighbors less whenever they are disagreeing with the government. Think about how COVID superfans reacted during COVID. Everything the government said was correct, and they would fight for it. They would disavow their friends and family members to defend the government's claims about COVID. And no matter how many times it was proven to them in a way that they accept that the government was wrong and lying to them, that also helps them reaffirm their trust in government. They assume once again that these people are the best possible people to be handling the situation. They have the input of all the experts. They have all the resources necessary to get the answers right, but they're still human and you can't expect perfection. They are doing their best with all the right intentions. And if they happen to get some things wrong, we're forgiving people and we can forgive the government when they make mistakes. Every future societal trauma will convince them of the same thing. Not long after COVID, they were told 
that the government would absolutely never steal an election. And the people who bought into that and said, yes, the government is exactly right. They checked everything. They have the best experts. They have the best access to information. They checked on the elections. Everything was perfectly fine. The people who believed all that and accepted that notion were the same people who had just spent years talking about how the 2016 election was stolen by Trump with Russia's help which they still believe despite that whole story being proven false as well. They watch an election stolen in broad daylight. Half of the country, if not far more, knows it's stolen immediately. And they still say it's not possible. We trust the government. Same thing after the very violent insurrection. And then a year after that, we begin the Russia-Ukraine scenario. And they trust the government again. Of course, it's worth going to war to defend the very sovereign borders of a country halfway across the world. We have to save the lives of those brave Ukrainians. And the way you can help us save the lives of those brave Ukrainians is by supporting our war effort online and using Ukraine flag emojis. Put Ukraine flags outside your house. Look for blue and yellow when you see corporate advertising so that you can know which companies are on the right side of things. Donate a dollar here and there on your apps whenever you see that little Ukraine flag. You're helping. It doesn't matter how many times they repeat the same process. The answer is always the same. Trust the government more. Every time they trust the government more, they put a little bit more of themselves into becoming someone who trusts the government. Not like those other people, those bad people, those no-no people who are always talking about how bad the government is. If I see this new societal trauma and I respond by losing trust in the government, then what I'm doing is becoming like those no-no people and we know what's going to happen if I do that. And so the people double down again, pushing themselves further and further down the path toward total inversion within the false reality. Once you have reached total inversion within the false reality, you live inside the false reality. Your knowledge comes from the false reality. You interact with the false reality and you want to be rewarded from the false reality. So you respond to the incentives and the punishment structure of the false reality. You exist inside that. You become a member of the party of false decorum where all that matters is increasing your reputation by impressing the people higher than you on the hierarchy within the party of false decorum. The way you do that is by following the rules and exhibiting the best behavior so that other people will want to impress you. All along the way, all of these people who are asleep, who are in the party of false decorum, who are detached from reality, these people will believe that they're making rational decisions and within the false reality, they are making rational decisions. They're just using terrible premises, false premises, and they have bad goals because their goals are also a product of the false reality. It all makes sense in there. They do not have the ability to make productive decisions because they are only engaging with something that at its roots is entirely false. It is a bizarro world inside the real world, and that is the only world they engage with. Now, these people generally don't outwardly seem insane. They seem like they're interacting 
with the same world as everyone else. They are able to easily converse. Sometimes the conversations are productive and make sense to both sides, but they keep achieving bad outcomes because their life and their decision-making structure is set up to produce bad outcomes. Now, because they're able to interact normally with most aspects of the world, everything seems okay. They might have jobs. They might be very good at those jobs. They might have incredible functional intelligence in a certain field. They might be, for instance, a top scientist at the CDC or a top professor of gender studies, or they could be a fantastic musician or architect. They might have skills and functional knowledge of a wide variety of things that nonetheless do not fix their thinking problem and their detachment from reality because their strange, bizarro world is essentially a mirror image of the empirical observable reality. They'll be able to talk about a lot of things in the empirical observable reality that you will agree with and you will think we exist in the same reality, but it's not true. And you can tell because they keep making terrible decisions all the time about everything leading to really terrible outcomes. But because it doesn't look or sound or seem that way, because these people don't seem outwardly insane or incompetent or honestly, hey, retarded, we have a tendency not to think that anything's wrong, but something is wrong. And that is that they're brainwashed. You don't just wake up one day naturally and set out to do all of the things that will lead you in the exact opposite direction from your supposed goals. There is nothing that you could draw from natural reality, for instance, to convince you that if you want a long, happy, successful life with love and family around, that you should at age 18, go to college for four years, go to grad school for three more years, and then work 80 hours a week for the next 15 years. And then at that point, maybe consider that it might be time to settle down. That's absolutely insane and not something that you could just discover from the world because in the world, it doesn't really work that way. Yet somehow, virtually my entire generation, including myself for that matter, were convinced that that was true. And there's an even harsher version of that that generations below me have been convinced of. And hopefully, maybe, maybe the Zoomers will shake that. But that's the sort of thing that you can only be led into and that you would only accept once you have already accepted the reality of something absolutely false or truthfully, many things that are absolutely false. That is a complete and total brainwashing, but we don't like to call it that because the people seem normal. They seem smart. They seem with it. They seem like they are interacting with us and reality. And I absolutely get the urge to think that that word and that concept are extreme. These people weren't brought into a lab. They didn't have nodes attached to their heads. They didn't have their eyelids held open like clockwork orange. None of that ever happened except, well, I mean, honestly, it sort of did. 
How many generations have we been raised with screens? How much time do we spend on social media or on the internet despite knowing what those technologies can do to our brains and how we perceive things? It's not a leap to suspect that our brains might have been altered in important ways, and a lot of people are aware of it. They feel stressed out for no reason. They feel addicted to their phones, like they constantly need to get on their phones. They constantly need to reset their notifications. Again, I personally have experienced that feeling. I know a lot of people who say that they don't feel comfortable sitting down and reading for extended periods of time. And again, I've experienced that feeling. Our brains have been retaught to focus on all sorts of different subjects at once. Now, sometimes that sort of thinking process can be really productive, but it's not productive at all. If what you're trying to accomplish requires extended and relaxed and calm focus, we know that more people experience and report depression and anxiety. We know that society has been atomized. People experience more loneliness. The spirituality has been removed from culture and people are trying to find ways to replace that through yoga or meditation or various new age spiritual practices or drug use or alcohol or sex, all sorts of different vices to fill this need, this void, this yearning that our society has created within us. And despite all that, we reject the word brainwashing because we don't feel that something has been directly and intentionally done to us. We just got this way over time and largely as a product of our own choices. We could feel ourselves gradually changing as our habits changed, but we convinced ourselves that our habits needed to change because now we were in a modern world and everything is different within this modern world, including our brains and the experience of what it is like to be us. Before I woke up, I rejected that term. It didn't make sense. And I certainly didn't understand it for myself. I mean, I knew literally thousands of people. I would see them out and about all the time. People from totally different walks of life with completely different beliefs about politics and anything else. And I would have conversations with them. I would listen to them. I would try to find out why they thought what they thought. And I didn't always agree with them, but I felt like I got a pretty good idea of the range of beliefs that people have. I thought I was open to all sorts of ideas and could not be brainwashed. But we're told that a bunch of people have been brainwashed. All of these people are sheep. And I was like, well, I'm not a sheep. So I guess the people who don't agree with me must be the sheep. They're the ones who are brainwashed, but they're also the ones saying the things that no one ever really agrees about. So why would they be brainwashed into that? And the people who seem like they're more brainwashed and do what everybody else says they should be doing, the people who always have the same fashion and the same taste in music, they want to go see the same movies and travel to the same places, whichever places are trendy. Oh, this year it's Ibiza. This year it's Tulum. This year it's the Maldives. Those people can't be brainwashed. They're too wealthy. They're too successful. They're too cultured to be brainwashed. And plus, 
I agree with most of what they're saying. Our politics are very similar. So if they're brainwashed, am I brainwashed too? And that just never made sense. I was like, what is this brainwash thing? This is nonsense. There's not some project to brainwash everyone that actually worked. And now we just have this society full of mindless drones repeating everything they're told to repeat. And well, here we are a few years later. And I'm like, yeah, so that's exactly what happened. Now, if you followed this show for a while, you'll know that one of my focuses of this entire time, one of the focuses of my thinking for the last three years is to try to figure out how all of those people who I knew so well and whose lives in many ways mirrored and intersected mine, how it would be possible that they could be so brainwashed and even once they become aware of the fact that they're wrong about this range of things, they will continue down the same path regardless. I was confused about how the people out there on welfare, living in public housing, totally existing on the government dole, could have the same political opinions that I used to have, the same political opinions my peers had, the same political opinions that our elites have. The same political opinions that the people running all of the institutions in our country have and the same political opinions held by the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world. How is it that the wealthiest and most powerful people hold the same political opinions as those whose entire life consists of collecting and using government benefits? How is it possible that these people all believe the same things about how the world should be? And I eventually came to the idea of the party of false decorum. These people who have all agreed that the way to pursue their own advancement is by climbing a ladder in a social hierarchy that requires them to impress the people above them in that hierarchy which invariably at some point requires them compromising their own character or performing corrupt acts in order to continue rising. And at the top rungs of that ladder, there is only corruption and compromise because everything else you could give the people on the higher rungs is something they already have. Now, as I said before, it is rational to approach life in this way if you are already committed to the false reality, if you exist inside the false reality, if your life is an inversion within the false reality, it makes total sense to proceed through life this way. It's no mistake that within the false reality, the only form of existence is that on the material plane and all of the goals that one might have in a scientific materialist worldview would be superficial goals. People essentially pursue power, status, wealth, and pleasure. And obviously all of this exists within matters of degree, and it doesn't preclude having some real desires, real goals, and real good outcomes in one's life. It's not like everything is just terrible all the time. But the good things will never be good enough because the superficial goals within the false reality are never completed. But is it brainwashing that gets you there? Are you brainwashed 
out of your attachment to the empirical observable reality. And once the brainwashing occurs, are you only able to interact with the false reality? And what does it mean to be brainwashed? How does the brainwashing occur? So I was thinking about this toward the end of last week, and I had a thought arise about a conversation I had with someone I was close to in 2020. I had read something about this condition where people are not able to form visual images in their mind's eye. If I recall, the example was that people conducting a study asked the study subjects to envision an apple, and it turns out that there are people in the world who are not able to form a vision of an apple in their mind's eye. And that sounded extraordinary to me. And so I would occasionally bring it up in conversations just to see what people thought about it. And I would say, hey, are you able to form a picture of an apple in your mind's eye? I mean, I know that question might sound crazy because I can do it and I think everybody can do it. But can you do it? Because I'd never heard of it. It sounds so easy and so natural to me. I mean, let's try it, right? Can you picture an apple? Is your apple red or green? Where is your apple sitting? Is it on a counter? Is it on a tabletop? Is it in a fruit bowl? Is it from a still life painting? Is your apple hanging unplucked from a tree? Is it a thin horizontal slice of apple floating atop an apple martini at TGI Fridays? Is it an apple on the head of a clown that someone is going to shoot with an arrow? Is it the big apple that rises above the outfield fence at Mets games when the Mets hit a home run? What kind of apple did you imagine? Did you imagine all of those apples? I imagined each and every one of those apples and could see them in my mind's eye. But it turns out that this friend who I spoke to was like, no, I can't do that. And I was like, what in the world could that possibly mean? You're telling me that I can say, picture a green apple on a table on the front porch and you don't know what that looks like in your head? It made absolutely no sense to me, but apparently this is a real thing. So I was thinking about this last week and I was like, you know what? I'm going to see if I can't find a little bit of information about this crazy condition that apparently some people have called aphantasia. Here's what Wikipedia says about it. Aphantasia is the inability to create mental imagery. The phenomenon was first described by Francis Galton in 1880, but has since remained relatively unstudied. Now keep that name in your head, Francis Galton, 1880. We're going to come back to that. Interest in the phenomenon renewed after the publication of a study in 2015 conducted by a team led by Professor Adam Zeman of the University of Exeter. Zeman's team coined the term aphantasia, derived from the ancient Greek word phantasia, which means imagination, and the prefix a, which means without. Very natural word formation. Research on the condition is still scarce. Some research has investigated subtypes of aphantasia. One subtype is spatial aphantasia, the inability to create mental imagery in the visuospatial aspect. 
Another is object aphantasia, the inability to create mental images of single items or events. Hyperphantasia, the condition of having extremely vivid mental imagery, is the opposite of aphantasia. Wikipedia notes in the history of aphantasia that Galton wrote, To my astonishment, I found that the great majority of the men of science to whom I first applied protested that mental imagery was unknown to them, and they looked on me as fanciful and fantastic in supposing that the words mental imagery really expressed what I believed everybody supposed them to mean. They had no more notion of its true nature than a colorblind man who has not discerned his defect has of the nature of color. So Galton seems to have discovered this very strange phenomenon, or one that we can at least consider strange if we are not experiencing it. It seems like the natural default of the human brain is to be able to form mental images. It would be very odd if there were just simply humans born with this skill and without it. And it doesn't seem like it's the sort of thing that would arise as the end result of some process. It's not like we all just turned on our ability to form pictures in our mind's eye, but maybe it could be turned off. And these are my thoughts that I'm communicating about this. Just to be clear, this is not the science, but Galton is given credit for this discovery about 143 years ago even though there is seemingly no mention of it prior to this in history. Now, I don't know if you've studied much history or, say, studied ancient philosophy as I have, but it struck me as surprising and likely extremely rare that there would be this natural condition of the human mind that no one would have ever discovered or discussed for thousands of years Prior to 1880, when Francis Galton realized that people could not form mental images. So I looked into Sir Francis Galton a little bit more. He was born in February of 1822, lived till January of 1911. He was an English polymath in the Victorian era. He was a proponent of social Darwinism, eugenics, and scientific racism. Galton was knighted in 1909. I am surprised that Black Lives Matter has not demanded that the British crown remove his knighthood for being a white supremacist. They should at least find a statue of him and attack it with sticks. Galton was described as a child prodigy. He attended some of the best schools of the age. He studied Greek and Latin and Shakespeare and medicine. He ended up being a Freemason. He traveled extensively and he was half cousins with Charles Darwin. He wrote a book called The Art of Travel and received various awards and citations throughout his life. Just a great, great man, also a eugenicist and scientific racist. Wikipedia notes that Galton invented the term eugenics in 1883 
and set down many of his observations and conclusions in a book called Inquiries into Human Faculty and its Development. This is just a mere three years after he discovered aphantasia. He says this book's intention is to touch on various topics more or less connected with that of the cultivation of race, or as we might call it, with eugenic questions, and to present the results of several of my own separate investigations. He eventually became the honorary president of the Eugenics Education Society, who held their first International Congress of Eugenics in 1912, where Winston Churchill was one of the attendees. But wait, but wait, didn't he defeat the Nazis? According to an editorial in Nature Journal, Galton also constructed a racial hierarchy in which white people were considered superior. He wrote that the average intellectual standard of the Negro race is some two grades below our own, the Anglo-Saxon. According to the Encyclopedia of Genocide, Galton bordered on the justification of genocide when he stated there exists a sentiment, for the most part quite unreasonable, against the gradual extinction of an inferior race. Yes, I would say that would qualify you for a justification of genocide. He also, as noted by Wikipedia, provided a model for population stability. Now, what is population stability? Oh, it's population control. What is population control? Oh, yeah, it's making sure that there aren't too many humans, especially not the humans produced by certain people. So Galton had quite an interesting and notable life. The half cousin of Charles Dalton in elite academia in Europe, in the elite societies and the secret societies of that age in Europe, while the Prussian Empire was so prominent before they had to simply disappear and become the invisible enemy. And you can read about Charles Darwin and evolution's relationship to the Prussian Empire, the work of the science and academia of that age, primarily in support of that same Prussian Empire. The Prussian Empire focused on eugenics and depopulation. Both of these we understand from the history as it has been told to us from World War II, from World War I, from that era. Eugenics didn't only exist for the Nazis of that era. The Nazis of that era were a microcosm of the Prussian Empire and of that era. Eugenics were being studied in the United States. Pioneering work was being done at Stanford. But we were told the problem only existed in Nazi Germany, only for Nazis, only against Jews. That's all it was. Never think about any of these subjects ever again. We've given you the full story. Don't research them at all and certainly don't come to any disallowed conclusions. Now, people who can't form mental images will probably not have any problem with that. And I tell you this entire story to consider just this. How unusual it is for a mental condition that went almost entirely unobserved for thousands of years of recorded human history and was simply discovered in 1880 by a devout Prussian eugenicist and is now something that people apparently experience pretty regularly 
And what is the condition they're experiencing? Well, I would say that you can parse the inability to form mental images as a lack of imagination. Now, someone might immediately jump to refute that, and they might have an interesting claim. They might say, well, if a person lacks an imagination, how is it possible for that sort of person to be creative? How could someone with aphantasia be creative if they lack imagination? And that is a good and fair counterpoint that I'm still thinking about, but I will say this, and you can see what you think about it. A lot of the creativity that we are seeing in the world generally is entirely derivative. It basically takes the parts of other things and presents them in a new way, in a new context, in a more contemporary understanding. And it is essentially just a prepackaging of something that came before it. So perhaps that is not inherently creative in the way we commonly define creativity. But I really do wonder, and it's not something that I can answer for myself because I don't have this condition of aphantasia. I have absolutely no problem picturing things in my mind's eye, things I've seen, things I've never seen. Make something up and I'll picture it. Neon pink apple smashed against the side of the Empire State Building. Got it. Already know what it looks like. Not a problem at all. In fact, if you assigned me to think up a thousand different scenarios involving apples and what they might look like in each and every one of those scenarios, I will come up with a mental image of absolutely every single one of them and can certainly think up a thousand if I have to. But what about someone who can't? And then what would that mean for their ability to imagine other things? Can they imagine the consequences of their actions? I don't know if other people do this, but if I'm going to have a difficult conversation with someone, I might consider the things that I will say and the ways in which they might respond to the things that I will say. I imagine conversations and interactions all the time because I want to try to determine to the best of my ability whether or not the response that my words will elicit will be an effective response. Did I communicate my message clearly? Is the person understanding me? Is the person reacting to me in a way that is desirable? Am I presenting myself with honesty and openness in a way that will allow them to respond to me with honesty and openness? These are the sorts of things worth thinking about before you have a big conversation, whether it's something serious about an interpersonal relationship or you're asking for a raise at work or whatever. Can and do these people imagine the consequences of their actions? Can they imagine the scenarios and how they will play out in order to make judgments in advance of that situation about how they should act? And then at some point, you have to get to wondering whether or not these people are able to form new thoughts on their own. And that is when it kind of struck me that maybe this is the sort of thing that's happening right now on a scale much larger than we understand. Have people simply lost their imagination? Because ultimately, what is your imagination? Your imagination is your ability to think for yourself outside of interactions with material stimuli. 
There have been studies related to IQ that have found people with low IQs are unable to imagine the consequences of counterfactual situations. So the question that then arose for me was, if you can't imagine, can you form new thoughts? Can you learn? Can you disagree or dissent? Or are you just stating what's in front of you and what you've heard? And are your thoughts just derivations in the same way that the creativity for someone without an imagination would end up constantly derivative? Do people's thoughts reach those same ends? Are they determining what to say and how to act based on things that they have seen only in the real world? They are just repeating what they've seen. And I've talked before about the effect of movies and television on people. A lot of people experience relationships primarily on screen, and they believe that that is how relationships are supposed to be in life. They are modeled relationships on screen and then attempt to play those back in the real world. And I wondered, how is it possible for people to disagree with the regime when they don't have imaginations when they cannot form their own individual thoughts. All they are doing is collecting this information from the world and spitting it back out. Sometimes with a little analysis, sometimes they're changing the combinations of things just a little bit, a little more of this thing, a little less of this thing. And that becomes considered a unique idea, but it's not. It's just a derivative idea. It's just a restatement of all the slogans, all the programming, all the things you're supposed to believe and understand and remember. And so it struck me as odd that the observation of this lack of a mind's eye, this lack of the ability to create mental imagery didn't occur until 1880. And it still occurs now. And it was discovered by someone very embedded within the Prussian system, within the neo-feudalist system. Francis Galton was essentially a European aristocrat, a half-cousin of Charles Darwin, tied into academia and culture and society. The same society whose philosophical and intellectual progeny are the elites of today, the globalists of today, pushing this same sort of agenda on the world today that was being pushed a century ago in Europe? How is it that some Prussian scientist discovered this rare phenomenon that just so happens to be the same thing the Prussians of today are trying to create in society? A group of people so detached and unimaginative that they cannot even think of another way that things might be, much less another way that things should be or how to get there. We're talking about people so disinclined to agree with anything if it comes from a source of power or authority that they are now continuing to double down on decisions that they know are terrible, even as those decisions continue leading them to bad outcomes that can do nothing but shame and embarrass them and eventually destroy their lives. If that's not brainwashing, I don't know what is. Now, with all that in mind, I want to talk about a couple of pieces of audio that were released yesterday after I put the podcast up. We're talking about mid to late afternoon into the evening 
we get two little clips of video that are linked together based on how they are essentially the two opposite sides of this bizarro world dichotomy that we exist in. So let's take a listen to the first. This is Joe Biden sitting down in a meeting with India's prime minister, Narendra Modi. Now, Modi is a storied sovereign nationalist. He is considered to be one of the most committed and powerful sovereign nationalists in the world. Donald Trump had a good relationship with him. He has joined India with the BRICS nations. India is the I in the BRICS alliance. And so Modi is largely seen as representing the global good twin. Now, when he arrived last week, he was received with a grand display. He went to a joint session of Congress and addressed the House and Senate in an hour-long speech. The speech was extremely well-received. There were massive applause breaks and chants that sounded like people were saying Modi, 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 which was rather surprising to me. He had a lot of language that hinted toward the global regime's agenda. And without having listened to him speak repeatedly over the years, I can't give too accurate a judgment on what that means. Usually I like to understand someone's tone before I can assess what it is they're saying. All sorts of world leaders, whether they are sovereign nationalists or whether they are absolutely committed cogs of the global regime's agenda, whether it's Vladimir Putin or Justin Trudeau, in the right environments, they will be using the same vocabulary to address a collective context that is familiar to those environments. When Donald Trump goes, for instance, to the United Nations to speak, he's going to talk about global events using some of the words of the globalists. So was Narendra Modi doing that in his speech last week? He may well have been, but it's hard for me to say, having not listened to him extensively. So he arrived last week and the interactions with Biden have been very strange, to say the least. Biden, in whatever state he is in, some people believe his dementia is an act. Maybe it is. Analyze it both ways. Assume his dementia is real. Assume his dementia is an act. Analyze the situation both ways. Keep your mind open to the possibilities. All good. But Joe Biden put his hand over his heart, thinking the Star Spangled Banner was playing when it was India's national anthem instead. Normal Joe Biden sort of gaffe. He has a state dinner for Modi that is attended by Hunter Biden a day or two after he cops his plea deal on the slap on the wrist charges he was given in the midst of this massive scandal. He has a prominent world leader in town and invites his son along to the dinner. Nancy Pelosi's there. All sorts of communists are there. You got some business people there too. Tim Cook of Apple went. The New York Times reported that Rupert Murdoch's son, James Murdoch, attended. And at this point, unless you are just a standard issue villager completely obsessed with the central narrative, Nothing the Biden White House, in quotes, does 
ever looks good or professional or appropriate. The entire thing is kind of an insult. They have a foreign leader come to visit and Joe Biden, in the midst of his own bribery scandal, invites his criminal son to the event. And all of this, of course, with the backdrop of knowing that there is not a single world leader who actually believes Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. Now, from the perspective of other world leaders, they probably have to deal with illegitimate leaders and dictators all the time. So it's just part of the job. It's not like they're going to go out and announce that Joe Biden is illegitimate, but it is weird. And there's no way that Modi isn't aware of it, nor is there any way that Modi isn't aware of Joe Biden's political problems within the United States. So last week, he hosts a meeting with Modi and with a bunch of tech CEOs. And a video clip from that meeting went viral yesterday in the late afternoon, early evening. Here it is. I was just thinking, uh, uh, the, anyway, I started off without you. And I sold a lot of state secrets and a lot of very important things that we shared. Okay, so that's the clip that went viral. Later on, people went and checked out the official White House transcript, which says, okay, we, I was just thanking the, anyway, I started off without you and I sold a lot of state secrets and a lot of very important things that we shared. And then there was laughter, as you heard. Now, the video cut short at that point. And after that, Joe Biden says, now, all kidding aside, look, we're teaming up to design and develop new technologies that are going to transform the lives of our people around the world. And he goes on and on. Upon the release of that video, Democrats and villagers on social media got very, very angry because the next part was cut off where Joe Biden says he's kidding. And a lot of people think that makes a big difference. I don't think that makes any difference at all. And I would at least be open to the argument that him saying he was kidding actually makes it worse. Let's hear the important part one more time before we talk about it. And I sold a lot of state secrets. And Okay, so he says... I sold a lot of state secrets. Now, I want to be absolutely as fair as I possibly can be to the fake president. And so I want to analyze this on a few different levels. Now, I think it's possible that he may have said, I told him a lot of state secrets, talking to the media and referring to Modi. Now, I haven't seen anyone online propose this possibility. And the White House official transcript absolutely says sold. So people might think I'm crazy even bringing this up, but he is addressing the media. He's talking about how the meeting started without the media. And while they weren't in there, he told Modi a lot of state secrets. Now, if Joe Biden was joking, it would seem like that's the joke he was trying to get over. He was just having a little fun with the media. You know, come on, man. We're all friends here. I tell you, I've never discussed any business 
with my son, Hunter, and you go out and tell all the people that that's true. That's our relationship. Come on, man. And he's got such a good relationship with the media that he can make jokes about disclosing state secrets or selling them. And everybody knows he's just joking. So that is me being fair to Joe Biden. It's possible that he was just messing around with the media and telling them that he told Modi a bunch of state secrets while they weren't in the room. Ha 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 ha. Neener, neener, neener. I know something you don't know. That was Joe Biden's joke. It didn't come off because he sounds like a demented old kid sniffing degenerate. But that was the joke. And if I'm giving Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt, then I can say, I think maybe that's what happened. And maybe that's not a big deal. But Joe Biden has not clarified that that is what he said. The official White House transcript says sold. Everybody believes it says sold. And because they haven't changed it, we actually do have to just default to that interpretation if it says it in their official thing. And that's what everybody believes that they've heard. And by everybody, I mean people who are looking at it from all possible sides. Now, we are being told that the big controversy here was that Republicans were trying to score political points while lying about what that video said. They cut off that video before Joe Biden said, all kidding aside, and went on. But the laughter happens and people's facial reactions happen and you can observe what the people in the room must have thought and how they responded when Joe Biden was saying all of this. Let's listen to the whole thing again. It sounds like Joe Biden is trying to figure out either how to say Modi's name or how to describe him. He should have simply said Prime Minister Modi or the Prime Minister, and he seems to lose track, unable to say the Prime Minister, so he just says, uh, anyway. I was just thinking, uh, uh, anyway, I started off without you, and I sold a lot of state secrets and a lot of very important things that we shared. So before he ever mentions state secrets, he already sounds like he is not in command of his thoughts and his words. He sounds like he has no idea about what he's going to say next or whether the thing he just said made any sense. He's not even able to properly refer to a world leader who is right next to him. That seems to be an indicator of Joe Biden's mental state at that point. And if I'm right about the mental state that we can observe and at least make guesses about, then it's very unlikely that he is knocking some brilliant joke out of the park. And of course, he wasn't doing that and he never does that. Joe Biden is not a particularly funny man and never has been. He will smile a lot. And he will laugh a lot and he will pretend that he's joking and that everybody's in on the joke quite a lot, but no one ever is. I have never seen a politician who is less aware of how he is being perceived than Joe Biden. We're talking about the guy who sniffs and gropes children and young girls and they recoil from him in horror. Actually, adult women do as well. And Biden has no idea. He just smiles and plays along. We're talking about the guy who said this. 
I'm especially honored to share the stage with Brittany and Jordan and Nathan and Margaret Catherine. I, uh, I love those barrettes in her hair, man. I tell you what, look at her. She looks like she's 19 years old sitting there with her, like a little lady in a race car. Brittany, you're doing triple duty as a veteran, a military spouse. And a- Talking to a little girl while giving a speech, he says, I love those barrettes in your hair, man. I'll tell you what, look at her. She looks like she's 19 years old, sitting there like a little lady with her legs crossed. She was like seven. He's also the guy that said this. Secondly, we're in a situation where we have put together and you guys did, did it for our administration, the president Obama's administration before this. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. Joe Biden told a story about black kids at a public swimming pool and talked about how he learned about cockroaches as they stroked his leg hair. He told Charlemagne the God that if black people don't vote for him, they ain't black. Joe Biden is one of the most storied gaff machines in the history of American politics, and everybody knows it. And how do they define a gaffe in politics? Well, the common refrain is that a gaffe is when you say the truth by accident. So Joe Biden is not good with his words. And whatever is happening on the inside of Joe Biden's mind too often makes it to the outside of his mouth. And a lot of the time after that happens, he tries to tell everyone that he's kidding. This is something Joe Biden has done for decades. He didn't do it for the first time last week in a meeting with Narendra Modi. So yes, he says all kidding aside, but was he kidding? The people in that room with him did not think, ah, there's Joe Biden being funny again. They laughed uncomfortably and looked at him like, wait, what? Did he just say what I think he said? And then they laughed because what are you supposed to do when the quote unquote president of the United States of America, not that anyone in that room believes Joe Biden actually won, but what are you supposed to do when the man who in some sense outranks everyone in the room says something really ridiculous and then tries to play it off as if he's just kidding around and it's not a big deal. Well, you laugh along uncomfortably and that is what happened. Now, I'm not claiming that Joe Biden definitely did not think he was joking. I'm sure that Joe Biden thought the thing he was saying was going to be funny, would make him seem cool, would make him seem powerful and very unfazed by everything that's going on. Look at Joe Biden just taking it all with a grain of salt, inviting his son after this plea deal to the state dinner, pretending there's absolutely nothing behind any of these bribery claims, no matter how many whistleblowers, no matter how much evidence there is to show that Joe Biden has engaged in a five decade long history of political corruption. It's just no big deal. It's just cool old Joe in his Ray-Ban sunglasses and his top down Corvette with classified documents in the trunk. 
just be an old, cool, folksy Scranton Joe that everybody knows. Oh, Joe Biden. The adults are back in the room. Joe Biden. It's a return to decency. Just Scranton Joe doing his thing, making jokes like always, cracking everybody up to let them know, hey, I got this whole leadership of the world thing under wraps. It's no problem at all. I'm so good at this job that I can just make jokes and make you guys laugh. The whole thing is a crack up. You want to know something funny? I hired a man who pretends to be a woman and steals women's suitcases to run our nuclear security. I hired a man who pretends to be a woman to run health and human services. I call him a her and made her an admiral. Do you really think I don't have a sense of humor? So Joe Biden was joking. All kidding is now put aside. Joe Biden was joking. That explains it. But does it explain it? And the answer is no, it doesn't explain it. It doesn't explain it at all. Joe Biden is joking in public about selling state secrets with a prominent world leader right next to him. Now, maybe that would be funny in an entirely different scenario. But how funny could that possibly be when the person telling the joke is reliably accused of selling state secrets. The guy had classified documents unprotected in his home from when he was a senator. Top secret material that he had removed from a skiff. That's a crime in itself. Not like one of these crimes that gets made up about Donald Trump, and we'll get to that in a minute, but an actual crime. And then there is at least strong reason to believe that Hunter Biden took some of that classified material and transmitted that to people from adversarial foreign nations who were paying for it and creating business deals with the Bidens based on their delivery of that kind of information and their ability to wield political influence within the Obama administration and of course, prior. And naturally, there is no reason to believe that any of this behavior has stopped. We're talking about Biden business dealings in Ukraine, in China, in Russia, and plenty of other countries. This is something that Joe Biden has done for decades. He has always sold political influence. That is his job. His family is literally in the business of political crime and corruption. They are a political mafia family and they work with mafia families. Whitey Bulger's nephew was a business partner of Hunter Biden. They work with the Salinas family in Mexico, which connects not only to drug cartels, but to the Nexium sex cult. And as all of this is swirling around Joe Biden, finally reaching public knowledge and public understanding, even the mainstream media beginning to talk about Joe Biden's history of political corruption, Joe Biden is going to joke around about that next to one of the most prominent sovereign nationalists in the world. And we're supposed to think that all of that is just fine because he said all kidding aside. Now, I am not a Trump deranged 
common villager out there who thinks that Joe Biden just committed a crime by saying that or anything. But he did just admit, albeit in joking fashion, something that he is actually guilty of. And he is trying to use his joking as projection to show that he is totally unfazed. All of that stuff about me selling state secrets, that's only rumor and innuendo. None of that is true. It could never be true. And everybody knows about it. In fact, it's so preposterous that I joke about it. You think I just joke about it with Narendra Modi? No, I joke about it everywhere. In fact, you should hear me joking about it all day and night. I wish you guys could just be on Air Force One or whatever call sign I'm using with me when I'm joking. Oh, the rest of the press pool, they just love it when I joke. I wish all of you could be there to see me constantly making these hilariously funny jokes about how I sell state secrets and have for uh, decades. Gosh, it's funny. It's so good when I joke. I just wish you guys got to see it more often. You should hear you should hear the one about how I used to take showers with my daughter. You should hear the one where I lie about how my my former wife was killed cuz I tell those jokes too. And gosh, I wish people got to hear them and engage in the humor. I wish everyone had the joy of engaging in some of that real down-home, folksy, Scranton Joe Biden humor. You just don't want to miss it when it arises. But we are told none of this is a big deal. All of what he said is canceled out because he said, I'm joking. And naturally, because Joe Biden is such a good and decent and hilariously funny man, he can now say, I'm joking after he says anything and it will cancel out whatever he said prior. Like if he said, come on, man, look, everyone knows that my son Hunter is my bag man who completes my shady business deals all around the world. But all kidding aside, we created 17 million jobs. Ah, you know that old Joe Biden. What a kidder. What's important is that we focus on the fact that he created 17 million jobs. Now, he did not do that, of course, but you were distracted from his joke. So Joe Biden has the right to joke about anything, even about crimes he is credibly and reliably accused and evidenced to have committed that follow a pattern of his decades in politics, profiting off of political corruption and selling the power of his office to the highest bidder, whether they are credit card companies in Delaware or colleges or foreign adversaries. Joe Biden is joking. He is always joking. He gets to joke. He is the most decent man to ever hold public office. Therefore, he gets the benefit of the doubt at all times. Not like Donald Trump, who is actually a very evil, very stupid, very narcissistic orange man. 
who not only didn't win the 2020 election, he also didn't win the 2016 election. That was actually just him colluding with Russia, and everybody knows it despite how many times it's been proven completely and totally false. And it doesn't matter if I'm defying all of my ostensible principles by saying that. Donald Trump is just so bad that the rules are changed for him. And because the rules are changed for him, it is no problem at all that after he has been indicted by a special counsel appointed by the humorist in chief, the illegitimate president, Joe Biden, that same special counsel can leak to the press evidence upon which we are told Donald Trump is going to be found guilty for violations of the Espionage Act. Here is the audio that emerged on CNN last night, just an hour or so after the video of Biden just joking around came out. That video was put out by the RNC and Marjorie Taylor Greene immediately weighed in, going all in. Joe Biden is admitting to stealing state secrets. All of that is out there. And then out of nowhere, just the biggest coincidence of all time, this video drops. The bad, sick people. That was was your coup, you know, against you. Well, it started right at the beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a coup. No, they were trying to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. Trying to overthrow your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. All sorts of stuff. Pages long. Look. Wait a minute, let's see here. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. secret. <laughs> this is secret information. Look, look at this. You attack. And Hillary would print that out all the time. You know. send it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying, because we were talking about it. And you know, he said, he wanted to attack Iran and what? He said you the did. Papers. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a... a, See, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't, you know, but this is... Yeah, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, it's so... I'm look. we here and I have... And you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, I believe It's incredible. Right. No, bring some uh, bring some cokes in, please. So there we have it. Donald Trump actually joking around with some people. And in that exchange, Donald Trump has committed espionage. He in that exchange sold state secrets. That is what we are being told. 
Now, I'll get into some of the reporting on this in a second, but think back to yesterday's episode where I was talking about the documents and what the common villagers out there who are Trump deranged and very concerned with this documents case believe about these documents. None of them have seen the documents. They are told that the documents are national security documents that shouldn't be seen by anyone. Are they classified? Well, no, they don't call them classified documents anymore. They just call them national security documents. And Donald Trump is supposed to be waving them around at Bedminster and Mar-a-Lago saying, hey, everybody, did you know that I was president? Look at the national security documents I have. Aren't you amazed at how powerful I am to have these documents? So they're not classified. We've gone away from that. The Presidential Record Act is not in play here. We are told by the media, even though it absolutely is in play. And Donald Trump as president can declassify anything he wants at all times and had a standing order that when he was going to take something with him, it was automatically declassified. But none of that matters, even though he's allowed to retain all of his records that he wants and can take basically anything with him that he wants. None of that matters. We have something else, a new legal theory, another novel legal theory. And Jack Smith is going to get him on the Espionage Act. Donald Trump committed espionage by talking about those documents and handling those documents in the same room as those writers and reporters. That's where we are now. And if you say to the standard issue villager, hello, my dear villager, what do you believe is contained in and on these documents? Have you seen them? They will say no, but I know that it's national security documentation. Well, how do you know that? Well, I was told by the news and they would never lie to me. Okay, well, how does the news know what's in these documents? Oh, Jack Smith said it in the indictment that these are national security documents. And he laid out the documents and described what kinds of documents they were, what kind of classification markings they had borne or did bear, regardless of whether or not they're declassified, because declassified documents still have their classification markings on them. But he told us about those and he gave us a vague description of what issues those documents may have intersected so that we would at least have some idea of what sort of documents we are talking about. If not the information on the exact documents, which, you know, is what we would actually need to determine whether or not this actually does seem like a threat and whether or not Trump is guilty or completely innocent which would mean that this entire thing is a complete and total sham. We are told that this interaction was Trump displaying our national security secrets to the writers of this book, apparently, in order to, what, impress them? And that he's so nonchalant about it. He's joking about it. He thinks it's funny and cool to show these people this documentation that he could have declassified but didn't declassify. In fact, now he's bragging about how, oh man, I wish I had declassified this so I could share it with you, but I haven't. So, you know, ha ha, just, you got to look at it from over here. See this document, see this document. Ha 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 ha. This video apparently proves all of it. This is 
the nail in the coffin on Donald Trump. The walls have finally closed in almost all the way. The walls can sense each other. In fact, the heat between the walls is rising just as the air between the walls is condensed. And the closer and closer they get, oh, it's probably going to go up by a tenth of a degree Celsius. It's going to melt the ice caps all by itself. And eventually the walls will touch, which means that's the beginning of the end for Donald Trump and our entire planet. But this is it. This is the smoking gun. This is how the New York Times reports it. From last evening, June 26th, audio undercuts Trump's assertion he did not have classified documents. An audio recording of former President Donald J. Trump in 2021 discussing what he called a highly confidential document about Iran that he acknowledged he could not declassify because he was out of office appears to contradict his recent assertion that the material he was referring to was simply news clippings. Well, that's interesting because he initially asked for that material from the person he was talking to. He said, oh, can I see that? So was that a staffer mishandling the classified material and giving it over to Donald Trump? She should have never had it in the first place or he? Well, maybe, but let's listen to the New York Times description of this once again. An audio recording of Trump discussing what he called a highly confidential document about Iran that he acknowledged he could not declassify because he was out of office appears to contradict his recent assertion. Portions of a transcript of the two-minute recording of Mr. Trump were cited by federal prosecutors in the indictment of Mr. Trump on charges that he had put national security secrets at risk by mishandling classified documents after leaving office and then obstructing the government's efforts to retrieve them. The recording captured his conversation in July 2021 with a publisher and writer working on a memoir by Mr. Trump's final chief of staff, Mark Meadows. In it, Mr. Trump discussed what he described as a secret plan regarding Iran drawn up by General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Defense Department. Mr. Trump was citing the document in rebutting an account that General Milley feared having to keep him from manufacturing a crisis with Iran in the period after Mr. Trump lost his reelection bid in late 2020. Now, for some reference on that, let's go back to the big piece of reporting on this topic, an article in The New Yorker by a woman named Susan Glasser on July 15th, 2021. The headline is, and earmuffs, you're going to have a fucking war. Mark Milley's fight to stop Trump from striking Iran. And I just want to hit a couple paragraphs of this to give you an idea of how this reporting was going at the time. The last time that General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, spoke with President Donald Trump was on January 3rd, 2021. The subject of the Sunday afternoon meeting at the White House was Iran's nuclear program. For the past several months, Milley had been engaged in an alarmed effort to ensure that Trump did not embark on a military conflict with Iran as part of his quixotic campaign to overturn the results of the 2020 election and remain in power. The chairman secretly feared that Trump would insist 
on launching a strike on Iranian interests that could set off a full blown war. So Donald Trump was so upset about losing the 2020 election that he was going to start a war with Iran to remain in power. That was the claim by the regime and by their propagandists like Susan Glasser. And all of this was communicated through Mark Milley. Now, you will remember at the time Milley's role in trying to undermine Donald Trump vis-a-vis China. There's been extensive reporting on that. And you might remember Nancy Pelosi wanting Mark Milley to do something. She wanted the nuclear codes taken away from Donald Trump. She was thinking about the 25th Amendment because she wanted the nuclear codes taken from Donald Trump. But back to the article. There were two nightmare scenarios, Milley told associates, for the period after the November 3rd election, which resulted in Trump's defeat, but not his concession. One was that Trump would try, quote, to use the military on the streets of America to prevent the legitimate peaceful transfer of power, end quote. The other was an external crisis involving Iran. It was not public at the time, but Milley believed that the nation had come, quote, very close to conflict with the Islamic Republic. This dangerous post-election period, Milley said, was all because of Trump's, quote, Hitler-like embrace of the, quote, big lie that the election had been stolen from him. Milley feared it was Trump's Reichstag moment in which, like Adolf Hitler in 1933, he would manufacture a crisis in order to swoop in and rescue the nation from it. And isn't that incredible, considering that we saw America's Reichstag moment with the January 6th very violent insurrection, except for the fact that that was set up by the regime the same way it just was in Brazil, the same way the Sunflower Revolution was set up in Taiwan, the same way the Maidan Revolution was set up in Ukraine. This is how the regime destabilizes and overthrows countries around the world. They have done it for a very long time. But in this version, it's not the regime doing that. It's Donald Trump doing it. Donald Trump is Hitler. Donald Trump is telling the big lie. Donald Trump is going to stage his own Reichstag fire in order to remain in power and consolidate power and overthrow the government. Glasser writes, to prevent such an outcome, Milley had since late in 2020 been having morning phone meetings at 8 a.m. on most days with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in the hopes of getting the country safely through to Joe Biden's inauguration. The chairman, a burly four-star army general who had been appointed to the post by Trump in 2019, referred to these meetings with his staff as, quote, land the plane calls, as in both engines are out, the landing gear are stuck, we're in an emergency situation. Our job is to land this plane safely and to do a peaceful transfer of power the 20th of January. And that is a direct quote from Milley. This extraordinary confrontation between the nation's top military official and the commander in chief had been building throughout 2020. Before the election, Milley had drafted a plan for how to handle the perilous period leading up to the inauguration. He outlined four goals. 
First, to make sure that the U.S. didn't unnecessarily go to war overseas. Second, to make sure that U.S. troops were not used on the streets of America against the American people for the purpose of keeping Trump in power. Third, to maintain the military's integrity. And lastly, to maintain his own integrity. He referred back to them often in conversations with others. So Mark Milley's plan, every little bit and ounce of that is essentially treason. Mark Milley, from his position, is attempting to undermine the duly elected president of the United States of America and commander in chief of the United States Army. He is doing that and admitting it. He is doing that. He is admitting it. And he is being celebrated by regime media for doing it. What happens to their norms? What happened to their institutions? They are applauding a military man choosing to undermine the commander in chief. They are rationalizing and justifying all of that to the public. And this wasn't the only instance of Millie doing that. And here's how Glasser described what he was going to do. A running concern for Millie was the prospect of Trump pushing the nation into a military conflict with Iran. He saw this as a real threat, in part because of a meeting with the president in the early months of 2020, at which one of Trump's advisors raised the prospect of taking military action to stop Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons if Trump were to lose the election. So they were worried that if Trump lost, Iran might immediately try to obtain a nuclear weapon, and Trump didn't want that to happen. That just sounds like a responsible job as president. At another meeting at which Trump was not present, some of the president's foreign policy advisors again pushed military action against Iran. Milley later said that when he asked why they were so intent on attacking Iran, Vice President Mike Pence replied, because they are evil. So basically for no reason. In the months after the election, with Trump seemingly willing to do anything to stay in power, except actually try to stay in power by doing anything, all he did was pursue it in legal fashion, talk about how obviously stolen the election was, and eventually just leave while conducting a peaceful transition of power. We are supposed to believe that Trump was ready to do anything and just didn't actually do anything. So while being willing to do anything to stay in power, the subject of Iran was repeatedly raised in White House meetings with the president and Milley repeatedly argued against a strike. Trump did not want a war, the chairman believed, but he kept pushing for a missile strike in response to various provocations against U.S. interests in the region. Milley, by statute, the senior military advisor to the president, was worried that Trump might set in motion a full-scale conflict that was not justified. Trump had a circle of Iran hawks around him and was close with the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was also urging the administration to act against Iran after it was clear that Trump had lost the election. If you do this, you're gonna have a fucking war, Milley would say. So back in 2021, in July of 2021, the story was that Donald Trump wanted to start a war of choice with Iran, and he was stopped from doing so by Mark Milley, who was actually heroic 
in his efforts to undermine Donald Trump's authority as commander in chief. Now, the only problem with that assessment of what was going on, that Donald Trump was going to do this to stay in power, is that he had been talking about doing it for a year already based on the idea that Iran would immediately try to acquire nuclear material or nuclear weapons in the event that Donald Trump lost and that the United States was in some sort of conflict or turmoil or at the very minimum had an illegitimate Joe Biden coming into office after Obama had done the nuclear deal with Iran and the massive payoff that followed. And now, as we can see, Joe Biden has attempted to resurrect that deal with Iran. There is no reason whatsoever to believe that the early planning of this situation in early 2020 was done to keep Donald Trump in power after losing and not to deal with the Iranian nuclear threat that could emerge as a result of the destabilization and the changeover in administrations in the United States. Now, all of that is crazy enough, but let's listen again to what Trump actually says in this recorded audio. They presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. All sorts of stuff. Pages long. Look. Wait a minute. Let's see. So Milley and the Defense Department had created a plan. That's what Trump says. This was him. This was all him. Milley and the Defense Department. This is in July 2021 at the same time when Susan Glasser was reporting that story, when Milley was in the headlines, when all of this was in the headlines. Donald Trump was discussing this with the writers of Mark Meadows, his chief of staff's book. We are told that this audio is evidence of Donald Trump violating the Espionage Act by discussing this quote-unquote Iran war scenario with these writers and that Donald Trump showed or disclosed or transmitted somehow national security documents, classified, top-secret national security documents to these writers. Now, if the last eight years has taught us anything, there is almost a 100% certainty that all of this is being done to cover up something else that was going on with this Iran story that we will eventually find out. But none of that matters right now because the way this is being taken on the internet, especially in the immediate aftermath of that Biden video being out there about selling state secrets, is that this is the last nail in Trump's coffin. This is it. This is the evidence. Now, everybody knows that Trump actually did what he's being accused of. He says right there, this is a document that I could have classified as president, but I can't classify now, which means for sure it's definitely classified and there is nothing else it could have been, even though we have absolutely no other information beyond what we are told and what we hear on this totally decontextualized clip of audio that Trump knew was being recorded at the time. 
Now, let's think about what's been done with this audio since. Who would have recorded the audio? Well, it's possible that Trump would have recorded it. It's possible that the writers would have recorded it. It's likely that the writers would have recorded it because often when you are interviewing someone for a nonfiction work, a book like this, you will record the conversation so you have the quotes for later. And then it is transcripted and it is used. Sometimes it's distributed. This is what Bob Woodward did in his book. And you might remember Trump going after him a year or so ago because Woodward wasn't supposed to use these other parts, the stuff that was off record. So it's at least a fair assumption that they were the people recording it, which means that they were probably the people who had it in their possession, which means they may have been the people who turned it in to whatever body as evidence. It's entirely possible that they were pursued directly in order to get information about this Iran event and ended up with the audio, whether it was Jack Smith's investigators or someone else. But this audio, or at least the existence of this audio, was reported about weeks ago before the indictment. We were told that this was going to be the damning piece of information. And the communists out there have been waiting with bated breath for this to finally be released. But why is it being released? Aren't we indicting and prosecuting a former president for the first time in American history? And they're just sending out the evidence of his violations of the Espionage Act to the mainstream media so that they can distribute it to people. And those people are supposed to get really, really upset and say, this proves that Donald Trump is guilty. Well, this does no such thing. In fact, it makes the investigation that much more ridiculous. Henry Rogers from the Daily Caller tweeted last night, new from Trump spokesperson. The audio tape provides context proving once again that President Trump did nothing wrong at all. The president is speaking rhetorically and also quite humorously about a very perverted individual, Anthony Weiner, who was deep inside the corrupt Clinton campaign. The media and the Trump haters once again were all too willing to take the bait, falling for another Democrat DOJ hoax, hook, line and sinker. And Trump's camp added, as we've been saying from the moment President Trump rode down the golden escalator, the president did nothing wrong. Trump responded for his part, writing, could somebody please explain to the deranged Trump hating Jack Smith, his family and his friends that as president of the United States, I come under the Presidential Records Act as affirmed by the Clinton Sox case, not by this psycho's fantasy of the never used before Espionage Act of 1917. Smith, in quotes, should be looking at crooked Joe Biden and all of the crimes that he has perpetrated on the American public, including the millions and millions of dollars he extorted from foreign countries. And he spells Biden with two D's, making it look like Joe Biden. So Trump uses his response to this damning new audio to claim that Joe Biden has extorted millions and millions of dollars from foreign countries. And there is a pretty reliable, credible evidentiary record suggesting that that is exactly right. 
Meanwhile, there is absolutely no record suggesting that Donald Trump has done anything like that, which is why Donald Trump's indictment is essentially just this euphemistic accusation that Donald Trump waved around secret documents to people at Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster who weren't allowed to see them. That is the grave crime Donald Trump is being accused of. Trump posted on Truth Social a reaction from Mark Levin, who I'm not a huge fan of, but he is a popular commentator and former lawyer. I think he was a former assistant attorney general. Levin writes, while beating their chests about the horrors of Trump holding classified information, the fact is that the corrupt Biden DOJ, sleazy Jack Smith's office, and the usual corrupt media lapdogs have publicly identified, characterized, and even released whatever classified information is known to the public. In this, they've committed scores of felonies, interfered in a presidential election, and have pushed the nation to the brink of some kind of civil war while smearing and denouncing Trump and his supporters. Trump hasn't leaked anything to the public. They have. And that, of course, is right. If all this stuff is so secret, why are they telling everyone about it? Why was Mark Milley doing the interviews he was doing in 2021, talking about these exact issues? And why was the media celebrating him undermining a duly elected president? You might at some point think that these people's motivations aren't what they say. After 50 years in Washington, Biden owns the federal bureaucracy. The thoroughly corrupt Biden family and Biden regime uses the power of federal law enforcement against their political opponents. MAGA extremists, pro-lifers, parents, all white supremacists, whatever that means. While the same investigators and prosecutors pull all punches, lie, censor, cover up, dismiss, play down all the publicly known evidence. Thank you, FBI and IRS whistleblowers, Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan and James Comer of millions and millions of dollars in foreign government payoffs, bribes, influence peddling, money laundering, and other sleazy Biden financial schemes, especially involving selling out to our biggest threat, communist China. We have a Manchurian president. The whistleblowers have testified about obstruction, political interference, multiple underlying crimes, etc. They've been ignored by the corrupt media personally attacked by the power-hungry Democrat Party and punished by the Biden regime. A.G. Garland, corrupt to the core like most mob lawyers, has been caught perjuring himself before Congress and obstructing justice by claiming to have not interfered in the Hunter investigation when IRS whistleblowers say the prosecutor told them he did. And they've numerous witnesses and contemporaneous notes to back them up. Garland has approved every sleazy investigative and prosecutorial tactic against Trump and MAGA Republicans while trying to create a public image of the earnest judge. He's a dangerous man with Stalinist characteristics. Garland has stonewalled appointing a special counsel to investigate his boss, Joe Biden, because he wants to smother with a political pillow Biden's multiple criminal activities that even involve our national security. He's the man in charge of the Biden cover-up and the Trump imprisonment effort. Garland appointed and unleashed the disgraced Jack Smith, known for Gestapo-like tactics, to pursue Biden's political targets, especially MAGA Republicans, and his biggest threat and nemesis, Trump. 
Smith was publicly admonished in an 8-0 Supreme Court decision for his abuse of power in a phony public corruption case brought against a former Republican governor. Garland saw that as a compelling credential. Garland, Biden, his operatives, the hopelessly corrupt media, and the Democrat Party are destroying our country right before our eyes. This latest prosecutorial leak of an audio clip to CNN is further intended to poison a jury pool and deny the former president due process, as he was denied attorney-client privilege and the usual administrative processes afforded former presidents when leaving office. To be clear, we know nothing about the context of the audio. Nothing. We are fed exactly two minutes via CNN, a favorite state-run media outlet. We know no more or no less than they tell us. And the multiple felonies committed by the regime in leaking the tape will be ignored. Felonies committed in pursuit of Trump are no longer felonies. The justice system is dead. The Democrat Party owns the federal government. And that is a very strong statement. Hard to argue with. For all of those legal experts and those supposed patriots trying to save the country from the threat of Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans, they sure are being a bit careless with their very important case that is sure to take Trump down. Shouldn't they be trying to stay by the book at every single turn, making sure never to leak not to compromise their case in any possible way because they have a strong case and they must have a strong case in order to convict a former president, but they're not doing it. And why? Isn't that weird? And here's another thing, just leaving that aside and focusing on the net effects of this situation and of this audio leak. What did they put out there? What did they get out there? What did they force every child brain supporter of the uniparty regime to hear, they heard about Hillary Clinton and her handling of classified documents, and they heard about that pervert Anthony Weiner and his laptop. Those are two wonderful stories to have out there in the public as all of this happens. Let's talk about Hillary Clinton's handling of classified documents. Let's talk about the Anthony Weiner laptop. So glad you brought it back up again, Mr. President. I hope we get to hear more about it in the very near future. And consider what we have just been shown in the tale of these two tapes in the last 24 hours. Joe Biden, who has actually sold state secrets, says that he sold state secrets, but that he's joking. Donald Trump, who has not sold state secrets, is being accused of selling state secrets and is actually joking, though he didn't say so. And in that, we have the perfect illustration of the empirical observable reality against the false reality. In the false reality, the actual Decades-long career political criminal was just joking, so we shouldn't focus on the fact that he is credibly accused with evidence of doing the thing he's joking about. And the other guy who definitely didn't do any of those things, 
is totally guilty. And the fact that he's joking just makes him more guilty because he's so irresponsible and so uncaring about the underlying issue that him joking around about it makes it that much more important that he's imprisoned. It's crazy, isn't it? That we can tell someone is joking just from the context and the way that people are reacting without that person saying they're joking and that someone declaring that they are joking doesn't actually override the context and how people react. So are you in the false reality or are you just engaged with reality? And you have to wonder if the difference has something to do with whether or not the person observing the situation can imagine it being different than they were told to believe it is. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!